open up with just a brief prayer for the words to come from the scripture and from me. Lord, I pray that you will bless this time of study, of hearing, of reading of your word. Please keep me from error. May the words that I speak be what needs to be heard on this Resurrection Sunday. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Bill and I were mentioning this week that it's not the custom of Reformed Baptist pastors to preach on Christmas or Easter or anything like that, but and I, I don't know why not. It's in the Bible. It is all part of the whole counsel of God. But uh, I said it was very providential that I'm beginning a, a series through Acts. And the best place to start in Acts is at the end of Luke. You all know that uh, Dr. Luke bo- wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Indeed, they start with a similar introduction. Uh, Luke begins, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent, Theophilus. And Acts begins, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. So the first thing I want to deal with is, who is Theophilus? The shorter answer is, we don't know. The longer answer is, Uh, God hasn't chosen us to share that information with us. The word Theophilus means friend of God or lover of God. Some suggest, therefore, that this book is uh, is for every friend of God. And while that is undeniably true, it probably is not entirely accurate. Luke says, most excellent Theophilus. The Latin word is optimum, optim. It is used as a term of honor. So some think Theophilus was a Roman government official. But Theophilus was also a common honorific. People would call other people this to honor them, that they're a lover of God. But some others think it might have referred to Theophilus ben Ananus. High priest in Jerusalem from 37 to 41 AD. He was the son of Annas, the brother-in-law of Caiaphas. It uh, sort of ties into this uh, Easter message. We don't know if that's who it was to. It could also have been to Mattathias ben Theophilus. He was high priest from 65 to 66 AD. Ultimately, we do not know who he is. We do know, however, that in Acts, Luke didn't refer to him as most excellent anymore. He just said, my, uh, he just said to uh, Theophilus, so either he was no longer a Roman official, or they were just better friends, and he, 
he just talked to him as a friend. So the book of Acts is the second part of Luke's history of the life of Christ and the early years of the Christian church. Acts is filled with the courageous spreading of the gospel, dominated in the beginning by Peter, then by Stephen, one of the first seven deacons to be chosen to serve the church, and then by the Apostle Paul. But to find out what inspired these men to the heroic deeds, the, the selfless spreading of the gospel, the courageous not worrying about their own safety, we go back to Luke and the other gospels. In these accounts, the apostles were not so heroic. Have you ever wondered why Jesus chose who he did as his disciples? They were not the cream of society. They were common men, working men who labored with their hands. Some were fishermen. We remember him calling the fishermen to be fish the fishermen to be fisher of men. Some were farmers. Jesus himself was a carpenter, made a farming implements. Matthew was a despised tax collector who cheated his own people in the collection of taxes to line his own pocket. These are not, well, there's not a priest. There is not a Pharisee. There's not a Sadducee among these people. They are the lowest of common men. There wasn't a scholar among them. Moreover, moreover, and this is my favorite part, they were Galileans. And you may not know what that really means, but a Galilean... Okay, Jerusalem was called in ancient texts the, the best city in all of the East, which was really a slam because the Romans didn't care about the eastern lands, and Jerusalem was the best. But Galilee was, Steve and I laughed about where I came from, but it's the sticks of uh, Judea. Galileans were looked down upon. There was no culture in Galilee. Uh, To the Romans, Jerusalem was the center of the middle of nowhere. Galilee, like I said, was the sticks. It was truly nowhere. Galileans were laughed at, derided for their lack of culture, lack of learning, and as we'll see, for their accents. Remember, when Jesus began his, his ministry, people said, has anything ever good ever come out of Galilee? Because until then, it hadn't. So what Jesus chose was a group of 12 uneducated Galileans that Jesus had called as his disciples. He has been teaching them for the last several years the things of God, instructing them on the way of God's kingdom. And finally, as Passover nears, Jesus has been telling them that his death is near and they will be without him. But they don't understand Earlier in the ministry, we know they don't understand because Jesus was teaching in parables and keeping it from them. But here, he's been saying directly that his death is near. Even at the Last Supper, the disciples didn't know what was ahead. Luke twenty-two twenty-four says, A dispute 
also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. This is at the Last Supper. Jesus has less than a day to live, and the disciples are arguing about which of them is going to be called the greatest. You can see Jesus just sadly shaking his head at them. He says, The kings of the Gentile exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Jesus stresses to them that a leader is one who serves, not the one who is served. And then he turns to Peter. Now, I love Peter. I really do love Peter because he is just like us. He's hot-headed, as we shall see in a minute. He is impatient. He's impetuous. He's full of bravado, and he's full of bluster. Like I say, he's just like us. Luke twenty-two thirty-one through 34 says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as far as it is determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them was going to do this? And Judas goes away, and after this, Jesus asked his disciples to go out with him while he prays, to watch and pray with him, and they do. Then Judas returns to betray Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew says Judas came with a great crowd carrying clubs and swords from the, pre, uh, from the chief priests and the elders. The Gospel of Mark is almost word for word the same. And John says, So Judas procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees went there to the Garden of Gethsemane with lanterns and weapons. I read somewhere that Judas brought a cohort of Roman soldiers with him. A cohort is a fighting unit. It's 60 men. Uh, They say that a Roman cohort in battle could not be beaten. They formed a huge block and fought from the inside out. So, of course, what does Peter do against 60 Roman soldiers? He draws his sword and attacks the servant of the chief priest and cuts off his ear. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus then reaches out and heals the man's ear. This was a lead-up to what happened next. Matthew, Mark, and Luke report that as Jesus was seized, his disciples fled. It does not say in terror, but I'll add that for you. They fled in terror. There was a Roman cohort with a warrant for the arrest of Jesus, and they figured it was a warrant for the arrest of everyone else as well. Nothing remotely good was going to come from this development. The disciples flee in terror. The Gospel of Mark adds this detail. In chapter 14, 51 through 52, And a young man followed with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Nobody else says that part. 
runs away in terror naked. Who was this man? Well, we have a pretty good clue. A linen garment was only owned by the rich. John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, was from a wealthy family. Uh, His mother was an early follower of Jesus. Mark at this time was in his teens. Was this young man Mark? Circumstantial evidence points to yes, it was. Now, everyone has fled. But we know two of his disciples returned and followed the procession to the house of the high priest. The two were Peter and John. Now, John was known to the high priest and was allowed into the house for the trial. But Peter remained outside in the courtyard. And here's the story of the courageous Peter who had just pulled a sword on the Roman cohort. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, now remember, this is a servant girl. It's not a Roman official. It's not a Roman soldier. A servant girl comes up to Peter and says, you were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. When he went out to the entrance to get away from the servant girl, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. I laugh at the phrase, Your accent betrays you. Because it wasn't so much an accent as it was a speech impediment. Galileans could not speak Hebrew. For some reason, they could not make the guttural sounds that are part of the Hebrew language. And so everybody who knew who a Galilean was and laughed at them for being unable to speak Hebrew. But this passage shows that Peter was afraid enough of the events surrounding Jesus, that he lied to two servant girls and to passers-by. They were in no position of authority. The girls weren't part of the Roman government. They were powerless to do anything to Peter. And yet, in this time of stress, when people are being rounded up, he lies and denies knowing Jesus. Realizing what he'd done, it says he went out and he wept bitterly. So we all know what happens next. Jesus is tried by the Jews, then sent to Pilate, who reluctantly sentences Jesus to death. Jesus is then scourged by Roman soldiers, and uh, there are graphic portrayals of that on television, which I have not watched because I don't really need to see it made to carry his cross to Golgotha, the place of the skulls, where he is crucified and where he dies. 
Of all the disciples of his, only John is with him at the cross. Everyone else has fled. In fact, only John is an eyewitness to every major event that happened that day. The Last Supper, the other disciples were there, but John was there. Garden of Gethsemane, John was there. At the arrest of Jesus, John was there. At the trial of Jesus, John was there. And John was there at the cross. But where were the others? The others could be found in a room behind locked doors, hiding, as they say, from the Jews. So how did these men, fearful for their own lives, change into evangelists who defied the authorities all over the world and changed the course of history for good and for all time? Well, you know, the resurrection alone didn't do it. Matthew uh, 28 says, Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. This is the Roman guards, by the way, for whom deserting an assignment means death. You will be killed for leaving. But they became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is before, uh, going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Now, I think the women probably believed in the resurrection of Jesus right about then. This is my guess, is that they were convinced. But doing what he said... They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And when they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him, and, and they came up, took hold of his feet and worshipped him, then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. This is a suspicious story, let me tell you. Roman soldiers don't fall asleep on the guard and they don't let somebody be stolen away. And they said, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. Luke puts it this way, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. 
But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their face to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So we have eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and the apostles don't believe them. The men who were with Jesus for the crucial part of Jesus' life didn't believe what Jesus said he was going to do and what the women said he did. It seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe. They didn't even believe the mother of Jesus, which is identified here as the mother of James, same person. In Mark 16, 9 through 11, it says, Now when he rose early on, his, on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with them, as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Just another account that they were not going to believe. The resurrection was not enough, even with eyewitnesses. It goes on in verses 12 and 13. After these things, he appeared in Jesus, appeared in another form to two of them, that means disciples, as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest. But they did not believe them. Now we have two disciples come back and say, we just saw Jesus. The others did not believe him. John twenty nineteen through 20 says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so we're still on Resurrection Sunday, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Okay, now we've had a physical demonstration to the rest of the disciples. But still they didn't all believe. The Apostle Thomas was not there at the time of Disciple Thomas. And even when the others told him that they had seen Jesus, he refused to believe. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, of course, you know later, that eight days later, Thomas was with the other disciples inside the room. The doors are still locked, folks. 
They have not unlocked the doors. Every time they're in there, their doors are locked because they're afraid of the Jews and by extension the Romans. The doors were still locked. Jesus appeared among them and called Thomas to him and said, put your fingers here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. And then Jesus said, that which we all still need to hear, do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas was convinced. He says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. And you know, 2,000 years later, that includes us. We have not seen, but we have believed. So what did it take for the frightened men hiding in a locked room to become the world-beating men of the book of Acts? It took actually seeing, feeling, and eating with the risen Savior. It took walking and talking and, yes, fishing of a sort with the living Jesus. It took knowing that what Jesus had said was true. That Jesus was the way and the life. It took knowing what the Apostle Paul would later write to in his letter to the Romans. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It took knowing that death had been conquered and that any death they might face would be temporary and any pain fleeting. Ultimately, what happened to the apostles? Well, Peter was crucified in Rome, famously asked to be crucified upside down because he did not deserve to share in the fate of, in the same fate as Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, known as James the Just, we just met his mother, the mother of James, was a beloved Christian in the Jerusalem community who was martyred by being thrown off the top of the temple, and that wasn't good enough. They then stoned him when he landed. John, as we know, lived to be an old man, living in exile on the island of Patmos, died around 90 AD, when he was probably very close to 90 years old. And the others, it says that the others carried Christianity to the ends of the worlds. And how about Thomas? What happened to the one who would not believe? It was said that he traveled to the east. Interestingly, but still anecdotally, when I was at another church here on the mountain, we had a missionary we supported from India. His name was Sam Uman. I loved Sam. His, he was, his enthusiasm was contagious, and I couldn't understand a word he said. Um, but... 
he was enthusiastic. And one day at a missionary supper that he was at in his honor, I asked him how he came to be converted. And he stopped me and he said, I was not converted. I've been a Christian from the day I was born. He said, everybody in our area of India is a Christian. We've all been Christians for 2,000 years since the Apostle Thomas came to our land. It's anecdotal, but it's the spoken history of a part of India that the Apostle Thomas came bringing the gospel. So I close this Resurrection Day sermon. I want to point out to any of you who, like myself now, some of you were at the prayer meeting, and those of you at the prayer meeting already heard this end because I shared it in a devotional. You have to sit through it anyway, no walking out. That many of you, like myself, have probably had people point out that Christians just stole from pagan religions. That many pagan religions have, have a resurrection myth. That Christians simply adapted pagan practices to facilitate the spreading of Christianity in pagan lands. I want to tell you why this is wrong. The early Christians weren't Christians. They were pious Jews. I told you a couple of weeks back that Jews did not just avoid the pagan cultures that they were living amongst, but that it was against Jewish law for a Jew to even enter the house of a Gentile. Peter pointed this out when the Lord called him to evangelize Cornelius, a Roman centurion. No Jew would incorporate any pagan belief or pagan practice into their own beliefs. And you must remember, the early Christians really, really considered themselves Jews first. Um, the original completed Jews. The other point is, just because other cultures, even ones that predate Christ's resurrection, have resurrection myths, does not prove Christianity wrong. It is natural for man to dream of overcoming death, of living forever. What would be more natural for a mortal being living every day with death, dreading their own death, or that of a friend, or a child or a spouse, who would not dream of resurrection and living forever? But the story, the pagan myth, does not make the real event untrue. Just because there were other stories doesn't mean what happened with Jesus did not happen. Over a hundred years ago, a story was told about the construction of a sh passenger ship that was said to be unsinkable. It was 800 feet long. It was the biggest ocean liner ever built. But on its maiden voyage, one April, crossing the North Atlantic, it struck an iceberg. As it sank, it was discovered there weren't enough lifeboats aboard to save the people. Thousands died. The name of the ship was spelled T-I-T-A-N. It was spelled Titan. Now you might say, yeah, 
I've seen the movie, right? Someone took a real-life tragedy and wrote a book about it. And I would agree with you, except for the fact that the book came out in 1898, 14 years before the Titanic sank. The Titanic sank in 1912. Did the fictional story make the real event untrue? Does any pagan belief make the resurrection untrue? Does a counterfeit $100 bill make other $100 bills counterfeit and valueless? The answer is no. And the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray.